Welcome, investigator. Evil is on the rise. Crime is escalating. Our mission is to eliminate the crime by exposing evil, examine why it manifests, and highlight the brave souls that confront it every day. Join us as we work together to bring justice to every victim. Welcome to All Things Crime. Here's your host, Jared Bradley. You know, it's interesting. It just seems like, you know, the United States, first of all, with our economic engine going, uh, what are we, $19, $20 trillion economy? So there's money flowing everywhere. And then just with the leeways, I guess, or freedoms that you have to do whatever kind of business you want to do, it just seems that without without some kind of a moral background or, or grounding, it's really easy to, to, to fall into this trap of, of thinking that fraud is, is easy to get away with. I, I, I look at like right now, the COVID relief funds, what do they yes. say? There's like $60 billion worth of, worth of COVID relief funds that was all fraudulent. Right. And you know, you, you, you look at that and you say, you know what, what, what is wrong with you people? It's like, here we are, you know, in, in, and maybe people just think, you know, money just literally grows on trees, but you know, that money had to come from all of us, you know, the taxpayers. And, and yet they were, they were just looking at it as a, as just a gravy train and saying, you know mm-hmm. what, yeah. we've got, we've got billions of dollars sitting out there that we can apply for. And, you know, I thought what, what, what company was it? Steak and Shake, I think it was that applied, you know, even though they're a multi-billion dollar corporation and, and as a whole, they don't qualify, but they started applying for funds based on just the, the restaurant by itself. And, you know, I think once they got caught and they were like, oh crap, man, we're going to, we're going to pay some heavy fines and they paid it all back. But, you know, that's just one example of, of these people look at these, these massive allocations that Congress puts out there and says, you know, we got to set aside all this money because everybody's uh, locked down in their homes and they can't work. So we got to, we got to make sure that businesses keep running and people can, can pay their bills and feed their family. And, and then they just look at it and they say, man, that's just, that's just so much money. Nobody will miss it. Yes. Right. That That's, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's how they rationalize it. And Jared, you're right. It's, I think it boils down to greed, just a sheer, sheer greed. And uh, you know, personally, I remember some people were saying, look, you're a PI, you have a business, you can actually qualify for, you know, 10 grand, 20, whatever it was. And, and, you know, I, I thought to myself, you know what? No. Uh, you know, I'm okay. I don't need the mo- the money, and it it sounds I don't know. It sounds kind of quirky. I just don't feel comfortable. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna put in for it. Maybe I could have, I, but I just decided that not not to. But I, I know exactly what you're talking, and and uh, yeah, I mean, here in California, there were people that were just raking it in. You know, groups, millions of dollars of taxpayer money. Yeah. Well, and especially the corporations that were still profitable, that were still yes. up and running and doing fine. You know, they, they, yeah, they retained all their employees, but COVID didn't affect them. You know, yeah, and I, some, there's, there's a lot of corporations that they actually did better because of COVID. You know, they had a specialty right. item PPE and thing, you know, maybe they were dealing in plexiglass or something like that. And so they were able to rapidly switch things and, 
uh, you know, if they can, opportunity, if right? there's an opportunity, I guess. Yeah. I, I don't, yeah. I, I don't, yes. There was a lot of fraud committed during that time. And, and I had friends that were working uh, for the government. They were actually retired people that were going back to the government and working on these COVID fraud cases. And they would tell me about some of these uh, cases. I mean, so it was well, I would imagine that, yeah, like a really big red flag is just people setting up LLCs and then just not doing anything with them. Right. You know, they're just, you know, it's just like a shell corporation and That's you got right. money flowing in there, but there's no product, there's no service, there's no, no activity. There, there's right. no reason for the activity to exist. Are, are those some of the things that you look for initially? Um, well, yeah, I didn't work any COVID cases myself. I'm just talking about some of, some of my friends, but, but yes, I mean, in, in work involving, of course, shell companies, you know, you're, you're, you're delving into, uh, you, you know, you write to the secretary of state, you get information about the company, you go out there, you kick the tires. You know, I mean, one of my cases that, that Middle East case I was telling you about in Egypt, the fella, I remember the fella had a shell company out of Los Angeles. So, you know, and this was a, a kind of a unit where you said, hey, boss, I got to go to L.A., go. Uh, I have to go to Atlanta, go. So I went out, I flew out to L.A. from uh, D.C., and uh, it was basically this, this company was nothing more than a, a, a tiny little office in a remote part of L.A. You know, I talked to the um, landlord, and he said, no, uh, that guy comes maybe once a year. He opens the door, he goes in, he shuffles a few papers, and he's gone. But no, there's nothing going on there. And then he, he opened the door. I didn't go in, didn't go in, but he opened the door, and I looked in there, and there was a nothing but a, a desk and a, like a telephone on the desk. And that was it. That was, that was his office. There was nothing in there. It was nothing. So, you know, obviously he was using, uh, you know, that as, as a shell company. Well, at least he had a physical address and he did have a little a bit of furniture. I yeah. mean, there's, aren't there a fair number of people that just, they'll set these things up and then literally yeah. there's, there's no expenses. There's just money coming in and then money going out different locations. Absolutely. Yes. Right. Yeah. They, they, they don't even make an effort to, for it to actually look like a real business. No, they're on paper and that's about it. It's yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, so that was your fraud, but so tell me, tell me about the, the interaction with the cartels. How did you end up with that? Right. So, you know, we were overseas by the, you know, I started in Costa Rica and then we had reassigned to El Salvador. And let me put it this way, El Salvador was not Costa Rica at all. And I had, you know, I had, and, and again, El Salvador was coming out of this civil war. They had just finished with their civil war. So, but, you know, you still had armed groups in there that were hated each other. It was a, a dangerous, really was a dangerous place. There were a lot of weapons that, that were out there. And in addition, one of my daughters got pretty, pretty sick. Um, and she was, you know, just a young uh, girl. So you know, we had to hospitalize her. And then my wife said, you know what, just let's try to get back to the States. So AID took me back to Washington. And while, when I was in Washington, um, I got a call. I, somebody who knew somebody called me and said, hey, look, I heard about you. I'm the uh, special agent in charge of the El Paso, Texas office. And this was a former Secret Service guy now with the Department of Justice. And he said, uh, look, you know, I understand you speak Spanish and, uh, you, you know, you're, 
you know, pretty good with informants and things like that. Why don't you come and, and visit me in El Paso? We'll, you know, we'll pay for you to come down. And I did, and I was sold on on the, on the whole the whole thing on the southwest border. And and of course, I speak Spanish, so I felt comfortable in that environment to begin with. But you know, I liked uh, the people in the office, and you know, the the fact that you know we would be doing kind of internal affairs work to monitor our own people to you know actually do investigations involving border patrol and. INS and, and ATF and even the FBI, so which was kind of interesting because I had been an FBI agent and now I would be uh, investigating uh, FBI agents for for whatever you know for disciplinary type type uh, things. So uh, I thought you know this this might be a pretty cool thing to do. And and again, uh, they made the offer and I said um, I'm go- I'm going to try it. I'm going to see what happens. And so that's how I got on the southwest border. Interesting. So give, give me an, uh, give me a, what, what is it the case? Like when you're sitting around Thanksgiving dinner and people are saying, so describe the best case that you ever helped solve involving the cartel. So, um, you know, there's, there's a variety of cases that we worked and one of them was, I can mention a cartel case. Another one was a civil rights case involving border patrol. And another one was a sexual assault case of inmates, female inmates, by a marshal service detention officer in San Antonio. So it's kind of, you know, going from, you know, one type of case with one agency to another. But with the cartel specifically, I recall we had a um, an inspector, and this is on one of the land bridges. And uh, this inspector, a former military uh, guy, but uh, with a kind of a checkered record for whatever reason, he came on board with the INS, and he was um, kind of this gatekeeper. You know, these were the gatekeepers of our land bridges, of you know, people and, and vehicles coming across the bridges into America. He, Raymond, his first name was Raymond. He married a, a girl from Juarez who was living in El Paso, and she came with, she came with cartel connections. She was heavily, her family was heavily, uh, you know, connected well-connected with cartel, with the Vicente Carrillo Fuentes cartel. So he began to do these little uh, favors, immigration favors for family and, and fraudulently little stuff. And uh, that just built to bigger stuff. And uh, he kind of went down the slippery slope. And uh, before you know it, uh, and they were giving him gifts and, and all kinds of things. Uh, and then uh, before you know it, he was waving loads of... Uh, uh, drugs uh, through through his lane. I mean, uh, cocaine, marijuana, and this went on for about uh, three years. So we had we had an actually it was an informant from another uh, agency from the customs agency, and of course we all knew each other because it's a small world down there on the border, and our unit was pretty small. So I would you know when we came to big cases, I, I would always elect to kind of uh, join like a task force. So we had like, F- I would get grab an FBI guy, customs guy, IRS person, of course, for the financials. And so all of a sudden we had this big case on, on this on this guy. And his life, in the meantime, his life was spinning out of control. He was, you know, he had a girlfriend in a strip club. The cartel had given him a motorcycle. He was buying all these cars. They bought a new house. Um, and you know, it was just his his life became uh, out of control, crazy. 
And, you know, we had a great, great prosecutor. And so we were on, on this guy for about, and, and the source was amazing. You know, he was a part of the cartel and he was, he was double dealing. I mean, he was, you know, working with us, but we didn't know he's working with other, you know, with, with other cartels and, you know, trying to make money on the side. And, and anyway, that, that's a, that's another story with, with that guy. Long story short, we finally had to take him down. Um, and you know, he ended up going to jail for about 35, 35 years. So, wow. yeah, I mean, it was, it was sad, but you know, a lot of the times people are weak, they'll take uh, cartel money. And, and in fact, you know, the cartels actually screwed them because we found out later that they would, the cartels would, you know, they say, Hey, look, we're coming through. This car is loaded. You got to let this car with this license plate, and we'll have a little thing on the, on the uh, hanging off the uh, the mirror there, and you're gonna you'll know that's our car. That car, you don't touch it, let it go. That's the drug car. And, and what he was doing is he was then waving like uh, two or three cars just because he wasn't just to make sure two or three cars behind me waved those through as 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 well. So you know, just you know, a lot of those cars were filled with with dope to the gills, but he never got, he never got paid for those cars. Just the, just the first car. So, but he made, I would, I would say he made about almost a million dollars in about three years. So any idea of how, any estimates, I mean, I I know you can't really know, but any estimates of how many, how many pounds of cocaine and other drugs made through the border based on this guy's activities? Right. Well, I, I know, I know for sure that he had about 400, I remember this figure, it was like 460,000 pounds of marijuana. And then the cocaine, I'm not, I don't recall exactly how much cocaine he had let pass through, but it was enough to get him, you know, about 35 years. They arrested the wife as well, but there was some kind of a plea deal and she was able to, because they had a child. So they, mm. you know, she got off, she did not go to jail, but I think two of the, two of the other Smurfs, that were working with them were arrested as well. Wow. Well, from a strictly business perspective, I mean, you think about the cartel, the investment that they made into this guy and what was it? You know, a million dollars over the three year period, but they probably made a hundred million based on all the drugs that went through. Yeah, I I would think so. They had, uh, Jared, they had about three or four cells within the uh, Vicente Carrillo Fuentes group uh, actually working uh, this guy. I mean, he was the, he was the golden goose at that, Mm. you know, for that time period. I mean, there were others, of course, there were other uh, uh, inspectors as well, but uh, this was one of the biggest, biggest ones. Wow. Well, like I said, that's a pretty small investment for that kind of return. And in the end, you know, they burned this guy. He's, he's an American. They don't care. No. And no. he's like, this guy goes to jail for me. It's kind of like the gangs nowadays. They know that if they have a, a juvenile uh, do the crime, then the juvenile will get just a slap on the wrist compared to what an adult would. And so they're recruiting 12 and 13-year-olds and 16-year-olds to do all their dirty work, including even up to murder, because... Even if these guys go out and, and, you know, put some bullets in somebody, if they get caught, it's, it's pretty minimal. And when they turn 18, you know, the, the, that goes off of their record. And then they're, they're kind of, uh, 
kind of clean, I guess, if if you could call it that. And then who knows, you know, what, but by then, geez, they, they have to be just neck deep into the whole criminal enterprise of it. And, but then they've, they've put their, they've put their time in as uh, the foot soldier and now they can become the lieutenant. So yeah, it's, we, we look at some of these criminals and we're just saying, you guys are just complete idiots. But in, in reality, there's a lot of thought put behind this, this stuff. And they, they adjust so quickly based yes. on whoever, you know, if a new DA comes into the in and they don't, the DA's like, well, I'm not going to, I'm not going to prosecute any, any crimes that are under a thousand dollars. Right. Well, look, look what's happening everywhere. You, yes. know, you know, all of a sudden saying, well, as an enterprise, we can send 20 guys in. Everybody has a little less than $900 worth of stuff. Exactly. And, exactly. but out of that 20 people, they're, they're walking, you know, they're running out of a store with their arms full of right. uh, tens of thousands of dollars worth of stuff that they can sell on the street for, you know, it may be 10 cents on the dollar, but yeah. look at the money that they can bring in. And Absolutely. lo and behold, you know, it, uh, it's, you, you see these videos. In fact, I, th- I think I saw a, a new one yesterday yeah. where these guys are, um, I mean, it has to be an organized gang. I mean, these guys are all operating in concert. And they just flooded that, I think it was a Nike store. And you see these guys, they have trash bags and they, they just fill them up with shoe boxes and, you know, racks of clothing. And then they just run out the front door. Thanks for joining us. Your attention today brings us one step closer to exposing and eliminating the evil that brings crime to our communities. Hit subscribe and share this episode. Together, we will bring justice to every victim.